Romans part 31. We're in chapter 11, so we're coming along the end of the parentheses of Paul's break of chapter 9 and 11, right? How he has to answer the question of what about the Jews? After one through chapters 1 through 8, he says, you are so blessed, you are so loved, you've received so many things. God is loving to you, God is faithful to you. And so, but he feels like he's got to answer the question, well, God was loving and God was blessing to the Jews, yet they rejected him, so what about them, right? And so that's what he asked is, um, what about Israel? And so he goes through and he explains Israel's rejection, why they rejected him. Um, does anybody remember why they rejected him? It's not really a, a simple answer, not like yes or no, but. <laughs> okay, yeah, the national rejection. Yeah, they, they, I don't even know if they really believe that. I think they just came up with an excuse, like we've got to answer something to the people because the people are saying, who is this guy? You know, he's doing all the things you said the Messiah would, would do, and yet you're not giving him the credit that the Messiah should get. And so they had to come up with a response, whether they believed it or not. Um, but God put it in their heart to reject the Messiah so that what would happen? The Gentiles. So the Gentiles would come in, right? So, so then as a result of that, Paul continues to ask questions. Was that God's fault? And he says, no, God is sovereign and God does have an election and he does give grace and mercy to whom he gives grace and mercy to. But Israel was not and is not without excuse because they had all the info they needed, right? And they remember they failed because they were ignorant in a few things. They failed to act as though they were a kingdom of priests to the world, right? We talked about the tribe of Levi was a priest within the nation. Well, the whole nation was to be a kingdom of priests to the world. They were supposed to send. They were supposed to preach. They were supposed to have the people, Gentiles, hear about God. God dwelled in Israel. God dwelled in the temple there. The God that created all the people around, the Gentile world, the known world, the whole world, and they were ignorant in that fact, but they weren't ignorant in the fact that they had the charge, they just didn't do their charge, right? And so their, so their rejection was, they were primed to reject him because their teaching was bad, right? Their, their own ideas, remember they would take the Mosaic log and they'd put fences upon fences upon fences around the law and so they thought, okay, since we uphold these laws, therefore, we're righteous. We obtain righteous. And remember, we talked about, I, I don't know if it was Romans, but we talked about how basically the, the, the basic premise of the Jewish people was that they were going to go to heaven or be with God just by the basis of them being Jewish, being born Jewish. They didn't have to have faith. They didn't have to repent. They didn't have to have mercy and grace just by the fact of being Jewish they would they were righteous you know because they generally followed their own laws upon laws upon laws and then Christ comes and says no that's not how it works for one that's works is never how you get to the Lord faith is the only way you get to the Lord and even by following the Mosaic law you had to have faith you had to have faith that God accepted the sacrifices accepted the offerings 
And all they did, as we talked about the law, all the law does is expose you for who you really are compared to God's righteousness, right? So they were primed to reject their Messiah. The rejection of their Messiah was not a surprise to God. He knew it. He forecasted it. He foreknew it. And he said that they would, a nation, or people without a nation, would come and provoke you to jealousy, right? So he put in Zion a stumbling block, right? And the stumbling block, a rock of offense, was Christ, the Messiah. And to this day, Israel is, they look at Christ, the Messiah, as a stumbling block, a rock of offense. And so there's hardening to their minds and to their hearts. A veil is on their, their eyes. And so that's the situation. But Paul is saying, but that rejection is not total, nor is it final right? It's temporary. And the temporary part of that is that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, meaning a, a, a specific number of Gentiles come in, Christ, that's, that makes up the church, Christ removes them. And then it goes back to God dealing with the nation of Israel once again. Um, so we talked about the purpose of Israel stumbling, that's 11 through 15. So now Paul is going to go against, or go discuss against a false teaching, and that is against really replacement theology, or against this idea that Gentiles are superior to Jews because they rejected, they rejected their Messiah. He's going, to, he's going to basically put Gentiles in their place so that they have a right understanding of how they are in God's blessing, and how Israel is in God's blessing, and how we're all together. Uh, and so don't think too highly of yourselves, basically, is what he's saying. So we're in chapter 11, verse six, verses 16 through 24. Um, and again, it's the, the false teaching against the purpose of Israel stumbling. He warns Gentiles against boasting over the fall of Israel because there will be a final Jewish restoration. Remember we talked last week that just knowing God's character and attributes, it would be foolish for us to think that he would not uphold his covenants and contracts, right? His blessings that he promised to the nation of Israel. Um, okay, so we're going to, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but we're going to go just revisit, revisit it some, and he uses an illustration. So if someone read verse 16 of chapter 11, Okay, so the first fruits and the root are terms that are used in an illustration, and they're the, they represent the patriarchs and the Abrahamic covenant. That is who God made the promises to, was the patriarchs, patriarchs uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through that covenant, was everybody would be blessed. The nation of Israel would be blessed, all the world would be blessed, the seed of, of, of the woman or the seed of David would come and be a king. Um, so they, God made Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the covenant with them. He separated them. And he separated and, and caused them to be holy for his purpose, right? So Israel as a nation didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. They weren't special. He just chose them by his divine election. And so he declared them or made them, he separated them, sanctified them to make them holy for his purpose, um, so the nation of Israel is referred to as the lump and the branches. 
And so this is what, in Numbers 15, Paul is taking that Old Testament passage and putting it here for the Gentiles. Remember, he's writing to the Romans who are primarily Gentiles or Jews that have been uh, you know, believers. Um, so in Numbers 15, 17 through 21, Paul is referring to that scripture to describe or to illustrate the, the relationship between the Gentiles now and the Israel now. So I'll read Numbers 15, 17 through 21. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor, so, so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. So with that background, Paul uses an illustration, right? A, a metaphor of an olive tree, and then it's different parts. And that's 17 through 24 of chapter 11, Romans 11. Um, and that's this relationship of the Gentiles to the Jews. So in verse 17, we find out that the natural branches of this illustrated olive, olive tree are the Jews. So the root and the, the, the sort of stump or the, the, the lump is, is the Abrahamic covenant, the place of blessings. As a result of the place of blessing, the branches are Israel, the nation of Israel. But some of those branches were broken off, right? And that's kind of what we're talking about, the rejection of the Messiah. Some of them, some of them rejected the Messiah, but the tree is still there. The Abrahamic covenant is still there. The patriarchs and the promises to them is still there. So read verse 17, if you would. But some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing roots of the olive tree. Okay, so the olive tree itself is healthy and good because God is the one who created and cultivates the, the tree, right? However, some of its natural branches are broken off, and as a result, wild branches are grafted in, allowing wild branches to be grafted in. Are we understanding the metaphor here after understanding the other chapters and verses of Romans, right? Um, so I said the olive tree itself represents the source of spiritual blessing. The source of spiritual blessing is the Abrahamic covenant, right? God promised Abraham through him the whole world will be blessed, Gentiles included. So by our faith in the seed of the Abrahamic covenant in Christ, we become partakers of this Jewish spiritual blessing by being grafted into the tree and root. And so we can wean or we can pull the nourishing effects of the spiritual blessings of, those, of the covenants and the promises. And we can have life-giving benefits. That's our present relationship is that we're wild branches grafted into the source of spiritual blessing, which is God's. So God chose to divinely deliver spiritual blessings through the covenant, right? And we are able to be into the covenant because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, right? So it's kind of just him repeating that same theology just with an illustration. Um, okay, so Paul summarizes this illustration or the same point in Ephesians also in a much more condensed thing. So in Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, he's also reminding them of the same relationship. So I will read Ephesians 2, 
11 through 16 because it gives us a sort of another angle of the same point. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16 says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So when, when was that? When were, he says, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, no hope without God. When was that? Any ideas? When were the Gentiles alienated from Israel? Remember when, right, remember when Christ died, what happened to the veil, right. right? The veil was torn in two. So before Christ, really, they were alienated. They had no connection to Israel at all. And Israel failed to do their part to bring in Gentiles. And so there was, they had no, the Gentiles had no idea about the covenants, about the promises, about the, the, the you know, the blessings and had no hope in God in the world because of Israel's failure and because they couldn't pass through that partition, that veil. When that veil was rent in two, that, set, that stopped that, right? So that's, that's what he's talking about. And so, but now, verse 13 of Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, right? Remember, that's where the Holy of Holies was behind the veil and the blood of, and the, the, the high priest would have to do sacrifices for himself and for the whole nation. Well, that's no longer necessary because the blood of Christ appeased all that, right? Did all that for all mankind. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, right? So there's no... Now, there's no difference in of reaching salvation, obtaining righteousness, of getting uh, justification. There's no difference between Gentile and Jew. They both come to saving knowledge by faith in Christ and the work he did, right? Okay, so that's Ephesians 2. It's a little condensed version of it with some a different angle of what Paul's saying. He said, I mean, Paul is the author of both Romans and Ephesians, right? So he's saying the same thing in a different way. Um, okay, so in light of what he just said, he issues a warning. So we, we don't want to take that too far, right? In the sense that, oh, we are exactly the same as the Jews. Therefore, the Jews are not our part of irrelevant, right? He's saying, verse 18, if you read verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Okay, so we're not to consider ourselves equal, that we support the branches, that we're the root, right? Uh, we're not superior to the broken branches. We're still wild all of wild branches grafted in by God's grace and mercy, right? We don't have the root, which is the Abrahamic covenant, Israel does. So don't be too arrogant about this circumstance. Be thankful, be grateful that it was extended to you, basically is what he's saying, right? The root supports them. The root also supports Israel, 
right? Without Baruch, there is no Israel, right? There is no covenant. So they also have to not be arrogant in the sense that they have to be thankful that they were chosen by God to have a covenant given to them, right? But the root is Jewish, and the Jewishness is because God prepared them and made it for them. Okay, so read verse 19. It's a, it's a again, Paul's sort of trend of asking possible objections and then answering them, right? So verse 19, if you would. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. All right, so we might, so it's basically saying, did God break the branches off purposely? Did he reject those people purposely so that the, the uh, you know, that we might be grafted in? Um, go to 20A, if you read that, the answer's there. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Okay, right. So is God breaking them off or did they break themselves off essentially, right? He's saying it is true that they were broken off so you could be grafted in, but they were broken off because of their unbelief, right? right? But you stand fast through faith. How are you connected to the root and to the tree? <clears throat> By faith, right? So their unbelief, their 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 thinking without faith, their thinking by obtaining righteousness by works is what keeps them on the root. And God says, no, that doesn't keep you on the root. Your unbelief gets you broken off and your faith grafts you in, right? And so, but you stand fast through faith because um, the, the basis of our blessing is faith, not works, right? Otherwise we would be just like the Jews, right? And we would fail. So then Paul gives a second warning with this train of thought. So read 20b, if you would. So do not become proud, but fear. Fear, right? Fear. Imagine that. Do we have fear when we have faith? But do not become proud, but fear. What are we to fear? Read verse 21 and 22, if you would, please. God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. 22. Okay. So we can take that out of context all day long, right? Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So in this illustration and in this context, right, in order for the Gentiles to remain in blessing, what do they have to remain in? Faith, right? Faith has to be their driving force. It has to be the only thing they can offer or only thing they can do is have faith in what God, excuse me, what God is doing. They must continue in faith. Israel had faith at the very beginning, but they failed and failed and failed and failed, right? To continue in that faith, as a result, many were broken off. So Israel should be a lesson to us as Gentiles um, as a whole, right? He's not necessarily dealing with individual believers, but as a whole, as Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles as a group had a start, Acts 2, the church has an ending, right, when the rapture. So we're, we have this temporary uh, opportunity to be grafted in. And so Paul is saying, don't be arrogant, don't be proud, but rather fear you group of Gentiles or you church that you lose what brought you in, which was faith. If you move from faith into works, 
right? You too could be cut off, right? Uh, you could be cut, yeah, you could be cut off and you could be just like Israel as a group, right? They were broken off because of unbelief in faith, right? Through faith, and rather they were doing it by works. Um, so if we as a group or as a church fail to approach God with faith and do it by another means, we too could be cut off. It doesn't mean salvation, it just means place of blessing, right? Place of spiritual blessing, because we already learned that once you're saved, you're always saved. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, nothing, right? Height, depth, principalities, powers, but you could be cut off from the source of blessing, and it could mean death, it could mean not receiving the spiritual blessings while you're here, but your salvation is set in stone. Um, are we good with that? So, good. And <laughs> say that's not an easy concept. Yeah. Um, you know, it's. I think of the Bible as being full of the fear not, worry not. You know, all that's a major theme in the Bible is that we shouldn't have worry, fear, or anxiety. So whenever I see a passage that says to fear, it really spikes my attention. Uh, so, and then it goes on in verse 21 and 22. It uses the word you, right? Which in English, you can mean a lot of different things. It can mean me, or it can mean you, all you all. You and. <laughs> you right? and others, yes. So when it says, um, well, he will spare you, talking about the plural of all the people, of course he's talking about me. Gentiles as a group, because he's, remember he's, he's, he, uh, let's see, where does he go back? The beginning of his, he, he shifts from one group to the Gentiles. He says, now you Gentiles, I'm trying to find that. There you go, verse 13. He says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles, right? He starts this section. I'm speaking to you Gentiles, right? So the you is you and the group of Gentiles, yeah? And as much that I am an apostle to Gentiles, I magnify my ministry because I magnify my ministry so that you would provoke my people to jealousy, provoke them back to the Lord. For if their rejection means reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Um, and the dough offered as first right so he's he's address he shifts his attention from speaking about israel back to the roman audience and says but you gentiles so he's changing this over so when he goes when he talks about verse um 18 do not be arrogant you gentiles right as a group if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches are broken off so I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. So it's the you Gentiles, the group. Because again, if our, if our group shifts from faith into works, we could suffer the same consequence that the broken branches of Israel did. Are you following that? So it is you and all the rest of us, the you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Because um, for if God did not spare the natural branches, which is talking about the, the all of the nation, right? Neither will he spare you, you and the Gentiles, right? 
But yes, in, so no, we, we can't lose our salvation as we talked about. Again, that verse could be easy to take out of context. Yeah, you read it in the singular. Yes, it, you could lose, but we know for a fact, but Romans 8 taught you can't, right? And so the idea is, again, isn't that you would lose salvation, but you would lose the place of blessing, right? The place of blessing is the Abrahamic covenant, right? The partaking of the place of blessing while here, while here. And so you, you know, when we talked, God uses multiple ways to, to chastise disobedient behavior. And it could be through trials and tribulations. It could be through physical death. And physical death is a, is a merciful thing if it, by God, if you continue down a path of rejecting his provisions for you, right? And he, there's plenty of evidences of that. Kadesh Barnea of the Israelites, um, Ananias and Sapphira is another one, right? They were all believers, but they, they rejected God's plan, and God had a divine punishment for them, which was death. They're still saved, but they didn't get to receive the blessings while they were here alive. Are we, are we following that? So, so even on the fear topic, fear topic is then in speaking in general to the Gentiles. Yes. So if I translate it like today's culture, like I fear where America's going, but I don't fear where my family's going, right? Because I feel good about my family. I have no fear for my family and our future, but I do fear where America's going. Sure. So I can sit in a place where I can engage this, that like I, I am still living in all the promises of fear, not worry, not don't have anxiety, but I can have fear for the nation, sure. what we're doing as a nation because it's not really what I'm doing, it's what a bigger total right. doing. Well, the United States has no contract with God, right? God has not made any contract or covenant or blessing or promising to the United States. And so we have nothing to stand on to say we started off good or in Judeo-Christian values, but there's no obligation by God to fulfill anything to the nation of the United States. His obligation is to you, the Gentile, the, the one who has faith in Christ and the body of believers. And so if if you remain in faith, and we, we see that, remember, there, there are many believers who, who are saved by faith, and then they want to do all the works to remain saved, right? They, they want to impose all of these laws and all of these regulations and all of these things to maintain their salvation. But we have been learning that that's not how it works either. Sanctification is by faith also. And who's sanctifying you? Are you sanctifying yourself? No, it's Christ sanctifying you with the Holy Spirit indwelling you. So our job is to actually, what? Get out of the way. Die, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, by getting out of the way, by dying, right? Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. So your job is to crucify yourself, like literally hate yourself. Get it out of the way. It does you no good, no value. It is absolutely worthless. So you hold on to pride or you hold on to you know, whatever you think you are, whatever you think you have, he says, no, your flesh is, is your enemy. And I've said it a hundred times, you are your own worst enemy. 
It's not Satan or the demons or the world. You are. Not to say that demons aren't involved and the world is affecting you, but if you can get a handle on crucifying yourself, what does he say? No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? And the life I live, I live by faith in him, right? That's where the abundant life comes. That's where peace comes. That's where not fearing, being anxious for nothing comes because he's in you. But what you must do is recognize and live as though you've been crucified because you have. We went through that early on that we die with Christ, we were buried with Christ, and we rose with Christ. We should already be thinking and living and acting like that, but we don't because there's this law. And he says, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man, who will save me from myself, right? And then we find out Christ will save you from yourself. Just let go. Let go. And that's the hardest part is letting go. We have to always hold on to something, and we forget to let go. So that's what we should fear. We should fear ourselves holding on to our old self and not letting go, right? Recognizing that we're crucified. That's true. Does anybody have that? Uh... That's what I was thinking. I was kind of liking it, likening it to um, children that have a, a healthy fear of their parents. If they disobey or they know that they're going off in the wrong direction, they have kind of a healthy fear, but that's not going to, they're still going to be your son. They're still going to be your daughter, no matter what they do is they're going in that direction, but they still, in their head, have a, a, a fear of what the consequences would be. So this, this word fear in the Greek is phobio, um, and it says to frighten, that is passively to be alarmed, by analogy to be in awe of, that is revere, so be, also be sore afraid, fear exceedingly, reverence. So there's a, there's a combination of both there, right? Reverence and frightenness, right? Fear. And, and obviously, because we're talking about, the context is talking about they were cut off, right? You should fear being cut off from this place of spiritual blessing. The whole context have been, Paul says, even though some were cut off, God's not done with him. Even though you might be cut off, God's not done with you. But don't be cut off. Don't be arrogant. Don't be too proud because take the lesson of Israel to you, the Gentiles, you and the Gentiles. You make up the group, right? So it's both a fear and a reverence which go together, right? Okay, good? Mostly? <laughs> All right, so In verse 23, Paul's going to give, um, even though to your fear, he's going to give the, uh, the basis for Israel's eventual restoration. The only thing preventing Israel's restoration is their unbelief at this time, right? Because God has full ability to bring them back. Read, read verse 23, if you would, please. And if they do not persist in unbelief, in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Okay, so he's reminding the Gentiles, don't be too arrogant, don't be too
too proud that you are now equal or superior to them in any way because God has the ability to graft them back in at any time. The only thing that's stopping them is their unbelief, right? And then verse 24, Paul explains why we should expect them to be restored. So read verse 24 if you would. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree, that is well by nature, contrary to nature, uh, were grafted into civilization, a, a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will be the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Okay, right? So here he's talking about it's unnatural for you don't take wild branches and put them into a natural tree, right? That's an unnatural way to do it. And so the source of, like we said, the source of blessing is based upon the unconditional Jewish covenants, right, that God made with Israel. So that source is rightfully the Jews because he chose them. This is one of the advantages that Paul expressed earlier. Remember in Romans 3, he says, what advantage then does it have to be a Jew? And he says, much in many ways, right? And he lists all these things. One of them is the covenants. One is the promises. And we're partakers, Gentiles are partakers and are sharing in uh, Israel's covenantal blessings. Um, and that's why we should expect them to be restored, right? That Israel will be restored. We should really just be grateful and thankful that we have the opportunity to be grafted into the spiritual blessing. That's really what Paul is saying. Don't be arrogant, don't be proud. But fear, because you're, you have this limited opportunity to get in there, and you're there, right? So be thankful, because they're going to come back in, right? I like in verse 23, God is able to grasp them. Yes. No one's doing this on their own. The only God can move whole nations of people to come back to him or whatever, you know? Right. Well, need, and, of us have a part in it through our witnessing and stuff, which is awesome. Right. But no man can go to God unless God draws him to him, right? So we've been talking about the doctrine of election as well. No man can choose God without God pulling him, chugging at him, right? We're, it's not that we're kind of drowning and hoping and waiting. No, we're dead, right? We're dead. We're drowned. We're at the bottom of the ocean. And it isn't until he reaches down and says, you come, right? And then you have the choice to respond positively by faith or not. You know, that's, but we as believers don't know who that is, and God uses us to plant seeds and to do these things. But it is God who draws man. Man was not drawn to God. There's none righteous, no, not one. None who seeks after him, no, not one, right? And so, like you said, there's, it's kind of, it, it seems odd that Paul is even having to take time to say these things, but apparently at that time, that was a big deal. And there, and we've, to us, it's probably normal or, or, well, of course, but maybe to other false doctrines, what do you mean we're, you know, what do you mean? Why should we care about the Israelites? They're nothing. They reject their Messiah. What, you know what I mean? There's, to us, it might be a little strange, but that is a big deal to some people back then and to, to right now in certain Christian circles. So. I mean, I've heard um, pastors in other churches that are yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's it's exactly right. That's all all scripture, right? It's actually very easy if you just read it and let it be it, and not try to read into it. Um, and that's that's very true. Okay, moving on. Verses twenty-five through thirty-two of chapter eleven: the promise of Israel's restoration. 
So we have, we should expect Israel's restoration because God is able to bring them in, right? He's going to, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? <coughs> so with that expectation, um, go ahead and read verse 24. I'm sorry, read verse 25a. That was 24. 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Ah, there's a mystery, right? <laughs> yeah, some harbinger event or something like that. Right, right. He did not want the Gentiles to be ignorant of a certain mystery. We've covered the mystery before, too. Um, so what is this mystery? Paul gives us the definition of this mystery in other passages. Ephesians 3, 3 through 9 is one of them. And in Colossians 1, 26 and 27 is another one. So I'll read Ephesians 3, 3 through 9, and it is this mystery. Remember this, the context is Paul is discussing the relationship of the Gentiles and the Jews now that Christ has torn the veil in two, right? And he's using an illustration to show how we've been grafted in to them, that there's no longer this dividing partition, that we, but we should be thankful and not proud or arrogant, but rather fear. So the mystery he defines as what he's actually been given, the understanding of a mystery. Um, okay, so Ephesians 3, 3 through 9, I'll, I'll just read that. It says, uh, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations that is, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, verse 6, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So what is the mystery? Verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow, fellow heirs, members of the same body. Remember that was, um, um, we don't experience it like they did, but Gentiles and Jews did not mix at all before, right? They did not mix at all. And even to this day, Orthodox Jews generally don't mix with any Gentiles, right? And so Paul is saying, it was given to me. I'm nobody, but God, Christ taught me this revelation. He revealed this to me. It's always been true, but it was just hidden in the Old Testament, right? Not, not necessarily that Gentiles would be saved, right? Because that was in also in the Old Testament, right? We, we talked about that. Um, okay, so Colossians 1, 26 and 27 says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. No longer the Mosaic system, Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? <clears throat> so like we said before, a mystery, is a, a New Testament mystery is a truth that just was concealed in the Old Testament, but now is revealed in the New Testament. 
before the mystery was not known to the sons of men, um, because it was hidden with God um, for ages and generations. But now in New Testament times, it has been revealed to God's apostles and prophets and saints in order to bring to light to everyone the plain, the plan of this mystery, right? Hidden in the ages past is now revealed to Paul by Christ that the Gentiles would come into this fold. And like, like 25b, we know that it wasn't that Israel's national sal salvation, because we had already learned, Israel would be saved nationally as a whole, even though for all of their history it's only been a small remnant, there will come a national restoration of Israel. The mystery that Paul is talking about in this context was that there would be a, a, a hardening of Israel. They were all always of God, and now there's a hardening of them. But that hardening was God's plan and God's purpose. That plan and purpose was to bring in the Gentiles, and that Gentiles um, would provoke the Jews back to salvation, right? We see sort of that, that cycle there. Okay, so read 25b, back to Romans, Romans 11, 25b. The partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that's the mystery, that Gentiles would be fellow heirs, right? There'd be a partial hardening that come upon Israel until there's a fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's the mystery that Paul is now revealing, that Gentiles would receive Christ, the hope of glory, and it's until there's a fullness of the Gentiles because of the partial hardening of Israel. We've kind of seen that. We know the hardening is not total. We know it's not final. It's partial and temporary, right? That was the point of chapters one through, or verses 1 through 10 of chapter 11 was that same fact. Um, and the fact that Jewish people are still coming to saving faith in Christ is proof that it's not final and total, right? The Greek word translated as from fullness is pleroma, and it means a complete number or a sum total. That's what that word in Greek means, fullness. So it seems God has set a, a set number, right? He says, I don't know, I'll make up a number, 2.5 million people. Once 2.5 million Gentiles are saved, that's it, it's done, that, that mystery is now closed. He takes his church. Okay, I don't know the number. It could be, you know, I'm just saying that that the the context is saying it is a set number, a fullness, an actual sum total, a complete number that um, God has allowed to come into the fold. Yeah. After that set number is reached, then what happens? Rapture happens, and then what happens? Goes the tribulation. Will yeah. Come, but Israel is goes back to being Israel yeah. as as the center, right, right. Of, of saving, right, of salvation. At that time, all Israel will be saved. All Israel at that time will be saved. All Israel is not going to be saved right now. There's still going to be Israelites who are going to die without salvation. But at that time, when the fullness of Gentiles is gone, at that time, there will be national salvation. But we know that in the tribulational period, two-thirds of the Jews get killed, right? that are not saved, right? They get killed. And that's a judgment that God has on Israel too, right? They're, the Great Tribulation includes two things, a, a, a judgment of the Gentiles and also a judgment of the Jews, right, by God. Um, 
So one of the pur purposes of the church age is to call out from among the Gentiles a people for God's name. That's what we are, right? That calling out will be completed once the fullness is reached, right? And then the rapture will occur, completing that action. Then God will deal with the nation of Israel again, rather than just individuals, Jewish individuals. He will, he will deliver and he will, he will uh, deal with them as a nation again. Um, read verse 26 quickly. I know we're, we're wrapping it up here, but I just need to finish this. So 26a. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. Yeah, so all Israel shall be saved, right? This is, again, this is the Jews living at that time, not all Jews ever in the past. Some people think that that means that all the Jews that have died in the past will be given eternal life. No, it just means at that time because they did not receive salvation or they did not receive justification. Um, shoot, there's a lot left. Okay. <laughs> Trying to wrap up this chapter 11 so we could have a nice break, but that ain't going to happen. So, <laughs> All right, so any, any comments or thoughts or questions? It's really not that difficult to get when we just kind of go through it, right? It's really kind of just, this is the way that it is. This is God. Paul's just basically teaching how God's righteousness is, and we are just to follow along, just pay attention to it and think correctly about it. So... Okay, I'll, I'll pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, with humility, with, uh, with our own pride in our own hands, holding on to what we know to be foolish. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to rid ourselves of pride and foolishness, Lord, that uh, you would give us faith, that you would give us comfort, that you would give us courage to crucify ourselves and to die to ourselves and to rest in assurance that you are upholding us and that you are sanctifying us and that you are moment by moment changing our mind to think like you, changing our behavior to act like you. And Lord, we ask that you would cleanse us, that you would forgive us, that you would give us, increase our faith. Lord, we believe, help us in our unbelief about the work that you are doing in us. Lord, we ask that we would not be not be concentrated on just the words of Scripture, but that we would be concentrated on you. The words are teaching us about you. We are learning about you, and the, the desire of your heart is to have fellowship with us, not just a knowledge of you, but fellowship and intimacy with us. So, Lord, help us to put these things that we learn into an application of a relationship with you. It is all about you and your son in us, and we're thankful. We pray, Lord, for the church service, that as a corporate body, you'd be pleased with us. And Lord, we pray for this new year that you would use us uh, as instruments of your will and of your way. And Lord, we would constantly say, I surrender and I give you all and have your way with me. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.